Right. Now, we would like to uh, just very quickly mention that we're in phase two of a three-phase ministry on the subject of discipleship. Uh, the first uh, section of this particular uh, study took us to the Gospels and seeing the influence of the great Didaskalos, the teacher, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, upon his disciples. And now we're seeing what happened to them after Christ departed into heaven, again studying the subject of discipleship, but now in the book of Acts. And then later we're going to study some practical application of the concepts of discipleship, teaching ourselves how we might approach the discipling of others and the helping of them to grow in their knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so we began by looking at some passages, particularly in the first six chapters of the book of Acts, to show that indeed the disciples had an impact, an impact that, uh, that was defined by the scribes and the Pharisees as, being, as, as uh, filling all of Jerusalem with their doctrine, described by someone else that uh, they have turned the world upside down. And we praise the Lord for that kind of an impact in that early church. And yet we remind ourselves of the fact that that early church did not have near the facility that we had. We, they did not have uh, radio or television or advertising. Uh, they did not have the, the uh, printed word. Uh, they did not have um, uh, building, church buildings. Uh, and so therefore, uh, we have to conclude that their success came not primarily as a result of method, but because of, of the motivation that they had from the teacher himself uh, because of the fact that they had been with the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, weren't they at one point accused of that very thing? It said that when they, they saw the boldness of Peter and of John, they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. There was really only one solution in their minds as to why these men that were ignorant and unlearned men could have such a dynamic in that day, and the answer was because they had been with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, even though we may not have the physical presence of Christ today, we also must be with Christ day by day if we are to have an impact on our world. And so we saw that there was, there was scriptural evidence of the strength of their success, and there was scriptural evidence of the scope of their success. And that is the matter of the evidence of the success of the disciples' ministry. When we finished, we had just said that there were many people that were touched from many nations on the day of Pentecost. There were a number of priests that came to know Jesus Christ, that a Levite came to know Christ. And this was only the beginning. The gospel of Jesus Christ was destined to spread across national boundaries and penetrate into every area of society, the rich and the poor alike. When Paul brought the message to the church at Philippi, Lydia, the seller of purple, purple from Thyatira, a very wealthy businesswoman, uh, was one of the first converts. And then, of course, there was the implication, at least, that a demon-possessed girl uh, with a, a spirit of a demon in her and able to uh, foretell the future as a result, uh, that she came to know Jesus Christ. And then the Philippian jailer and all of his house came to know Jesus Christ. And that was only the beginning, because when they went to Thessalonica, there were a great number of people uh, that uh, accepted Jesus Christ there. 
and then the Bereans, uh, and then they, they went on to, uh, to Corinth, and they went on to Athens, and uh, they ultimately brought the gospel to Rome, and so on. The book of Acts just is filled with the impact of the gospel around the world. And so therefore, the, the gospel reached all strata of society, bond and free, male and female, even in Rome, touching the very household of Caesar himself. All right, so that's the evidence of the success of the disciples' ministry. Now tonight, we want to begin to talk a bit about the explanation of the success. Is there indeed any kind of a pattern, any kind of a formula? Uh, there are some things that are in the book of Acts historically recorded that cannot be uh, considered to be necessarily a pattern. I think we have to be careful of that. Remember, the book of Acts is a historical book. It is a record of what happened. It is not telling us that everything that happened was necessarily the best thing. And there are some methods and some things that are not found in the epistles. And there are, there are methods and so on that are found in the epistles that were not utilized in the book of Acts. And so as we study the historical record, we have to bear that in mind. But we can find that there were certain things that seemed to be sort of universal truths, things that could be said to be true according to the teaching of the apostles in the epistles, as well as the hist historical record of them in the book of Acts, and that are true today and should be true if we are to have any kind of success in reaching the lost world for Jesus Christ. You know, um, after we talked last week about this multiplication thing, uh, one um, person came up, Ed Oxner came up to me, and he was sharing with me uh, that he had done some of this figuring with all these mathematical uh, things and figuring out how, many, how long it would take to reach the world uh, if everybody uh, just reached one person in a given time and so on and so forth. And uh, he made the point, and this was just, just fascinating, that, and I can't give it as well as he gave it to me, but, but if, if uh, one person reached one other and uh, so on down the line, uh, let's say you have five people, each of which in a given year could reach one more. Uh, that would, of course, give you 25 at the end of that year. But, and, and as you multiply that down the line, eventually you get a huge, almost phenomenal figure. But if at this point where there are five, you take off one, it reduces it, I think he said, by about a million people just in that amount of time. Just one, one person letting down early in the chain, that individual would, would mean the loss of, say, a million people people, considering the possibility of it increasing and multiplying uh, and all of that. And that's a, that's a phenomenal thing. The beautiful thing about it was the 12, and now the 11, and then the, the Apostle Paul at least was added, as well as, as one other that was added, some think, prematurely. Uh, but in any event, there were 12, and those 12 men really reached the known world with the gospel. I didn't mean they won everybody, but they at least touched all segments of society with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We dare not, in our day and age, let down. We must realize that every single person is an important link in this chain of touching the lives of multitudes with the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, so now to the methodology, if you please. If we look at it from the standpoint 
of some of these universal truths. The first thing was the preparation of the disciples themselves. The preparation of the disciples themselves. Now, that, of course, is something that just simply goes back and reviews everything we've covered uh, in the first section. Remember that the Lord Jesus Christ, in the third chapter of Mark, in verse 14, said that he chose 12, or that he appointed 12, so that they might do two things, that they might be with him, and that he might send them forth. That he might be with them, with him, and then that he might send them forth. Now the, the Gospels really record the disciples being with him, even though, of course, they were sent forth on a couple of occasions in the Gospels as well. Primarily, they spent their time with Jesus Christ, and then they were sent forth. And the preparation of the disciples involved those two things, being with him and then going forth. I think that a lot of people miss out as far as effectiveness is concerned because they think that if they've learned uh, some method, uh, like the four spiritual laws or uh, the ABCs of uh, uh, conversion or uh, the navigator's program or something like that, that if they have learned a, a procedure to follow, that they then should be effective in their soul winning. And face it, sometimes we are effective in spite of ourselves, not because we've done it God's way. I think that uh, because uh, the four spiritual laws contain scripture, if given verbatim, souls can be won to Christ, no question about it. But sometimes it's not because of the instrument using that tool, but in spite of the instrument. Because, you see, if you are to be effective in winning others and discipling others, then you first of all have to be with him. Now that implies far more than merely knowing Jesus Christ as your own personal Savior. It involves you yourself being a disciple of Christ. And if you please, it involves some time with him daily. There are a lot of people that have come home discouraged after trying to win souls to Christ because they failed. And they scratch their head and they say, I had all the right methods. I got the laws all in the right order. I, uh, I, I, I quoted the scriptures correctly. I did all of that. Why did I fail? Now, first place, let me say, you may not have failed. Even though you did not tie the last knot or you are not the final link in the chain, you did not necessarily fail just because you failed to win the person to Christ that you're seeking to witness to. It's the Holy Spirit's job to bring him to Christ. It's your job to sow the seed. So don't be discouraged on that score. But let's supposing you did fail. Supposing you just somehow could not break through the maze. Could it be that it's because you did not spend time with Jesus Christ? I think there's a lot of danger, particularly for a minister of the gospel, to do a lot of sermon preparation and spend very little time with Jesus Christ, just listening to his voice. You get so busy, you know, 
preparing sermons to lay on people. It's very easy to fall into the trap of spending little time on your knees before the Lord and spending little time in studying the Word of God so that your life and heart are built up and so that you mature. It's so easy to just stand and rattle off the Scripture, you see, and lack a vital living relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's my prayer as a minister of the gospel that I never be sidetracked from time with Christ. For it's the time with him that will fully equip me to go out for him. And Christ is far more interested in the time you spend with him than than he is in what you think you may do for him. So the disciples had that twofold thing. Now, there really were four levels of preparation. We didn't go into this when we were studying the Gospels, but this is something that I think uh, becomes evident. The first level, number one, was the level before the triumphal entry when they walked with Jesus Christ in fellowship and where they heard his words where they saw his works, and where they did his will. They, they were learning what it was to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the first level, and that was previous to the triumphal entry. When Jesus Christ came into the city of Jerusalem, they moved then to the second level. For the second level was an intensive crash program just before the cross. Everything that Christ had uh, communicated in the past was reviewed in capsule form. Everything that he had given them was given in, in essence uh, in, a, in a sort of a capsule form and uh, it was centered around several key words. Uh, the words were abide and love and uh, obey. Those were some key words that came up in that last week, that week of preparation. But you see, the first part was all the three and a half years of earthly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're up to the last week. Now we've got the crash program. And Christ gave the disciples some of these key things and then added and embellished with some others and even with a tremendous example of his own servanthood and the fact that the servant is not greater than his Lord and if I've washed your feet then you ought to be willing to wash other people's feet and all of those good things. Giving the concept here of the, the ministry that would eventually be theirs and so that they can follow the model of the master. And so here was a crash course on doctrine, vital and practical in nature. In John's cha- John chapter 14 through 17, most of that's recorded. It's called the upper room discourse, even though some of it probably took place as they walked to the garden across the Kidron Valley and so on. Now the third, the third level then, was the post-resurrection exp- uh, appearances of Jesus Christ. The, the second level, of course, includes what took place when Jesus Christ died on the cross. Uh, that was where they flunked the course, uh, but he let them take it over again after the resurrection. So uh, they did a little better second time around. Uh, they did flunk the first, the first test. But in any event, the third level of preparation then is the post-resurrection experiences for 40 days. And by the way, 
the key to the 40 days of the appearances of the Lord Jesus Christ was that Christ tied together the Old Testament scriptures to the New Testament truth. Now, when Christ gave his Sermon on the Mount, he showed that the new truth of the new covenant would involve a superior doctrine to that which had been given previous in the Old Testament. That is, uh, the old law said, thou shalt not kill. Christ said, uh, if you hate your brother, it's the same thing as murder. It's a higher standard. And uh, if you uh, commit adultery, that's sin. But, but uh, God's point of view goes even further, even to the attitude. If you lust after, your heart, after a woman, then you've committed adultery already in your heart. And so he did relate some of the things to the Old Testament truth. But Christ did very little comparatively during those three and a half years of ministry in tying in the new truth with specific Old Testament scriptures. Rather, after the resurrection, he took his disciples aside and with the fellows on the road to Emmaus and then following that experience, both of which are recorded in Luke 24, it says that he began at the law and the prophets, or began at Moses and the prophets, and taught them all things concerning himself. Now, they must have really had some 40-day Bible class. Because if you look at it carefully, you discover that virtually every one of David's 150 Psalms, as an example, have a bearing upon the ministry and the work and the character of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is, is really the key and the heart of the Psalms. The, the Messianic Psalms are the ones that specifically in the New Testament are, are quoted as referring to the Messiah. But the Christological aspect of the Psalms is that Christ is in all of the Psalms. And that all of them have a bearing. All of the things that, that talk about loving righteousness and hating evil were epitomized in the person of Jesus Christ. And so the third level of, of uh, relationship here, of preparation, involved this 40-day period. A 40-day period where they got it together and where they were able to take the Old Testament truth now and relate it to the New Testament. An exciting thing. When they began to preach, do you notice what they did? They took the Jews back to the Old Testament and they brought them up to snuff. Now listen, actually Stephen was not with them probably. He may have been. We are not told he may have been one of the 500. But he probably was not in, the, in this Bible class. But they so completely communicated the message of the Old Testament in relationship to the message of Jesus Christ, that, that when Stephen stood up to preach, and he, of course, was a deacon, and that proves that deacons can have ministry publicly too, because he stood up to preach, and as he preached, what did he do? He went through the Old Testament history, and he showed them this and that, and, you know, he's got all these Jews nodding their heads, you know, nodding their heads. They're agreeing with everything he's saying. Why? He's just telling them the story of Moses and, and all of how he brought the people out of Israel and uh, out of Egypt and, and, and how he brought them into the promised land and so on and so forth and so on and so forth. And then all of a sudden, zap, he takes the whole thing and applies it to Jesus Christ.
result is that these individuals stoned him to death, which wasn't a very good reception uh, for a message of that caliber. That's actually, Stephen's message, uh, just the way it's recorded, was even superior to Peter's first two messages and superior to most of Paul's. He really brought a message. I'll tell you, he was some layman to have in your church, but uh, it got him stoned, so uh, he didn't last long. But nevertheless, uh, it came as a direct result of this third level of preparation where the Old Testament was tied now because after the cross and after the resurrection, things became more clear. And the mystery of the church now, which is hidden in the Old Testament, now would begin to take, take form. Now the fourth level then was in the upper room. After Jesus Christ ascended, and this of course would take in Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 2 and verse 1, and would climax with the coming of the Holy Spirit, which of course was the fulfillment of the promise that Christ gave in the 14th chapter of John and gave again in the 16th chapter of John, the fact that the Comforter would come and that he would empower them, he would teach them all things, he would guide them into truth and all of those things. And so that would be, in the upper room, the final waiting before the day of Pentecost and then climaxing with the Holy Spirit's coming. And so this was a tremendous time of preparation. But now mind you, we have the privilege of sitting, if you please, in the bleachers and watching the Master at work. Because we can eavesdrop into all of these four levels of preparation. It was important that the disciples be prepared for the effective ministry that they would have. And it is important that you be prepared. And what you need to, to have in your heart and mind is the work of Jesus Christ and how he taught his disciples. Do you have that message in your heart? And then, of course, the Christ program that really is, is wrought up in these three concepts, abide and love and obey. And then the 40 days. Well, now in the 40 days, it does not detail for us exactly what Christ said. But we have the Old Testament that he used. So therefore, we need to learn how to relate the Old Testament to the New Testament truth. And of course, uh, the, the best way to learn to do this is by studying the Old Testament, which is what we're trying to do uh, in our messages on Sunday morning and Sunday night uh, during this series in Panorama of the Old Testament. You need to have a sweeping view of the Old Testament. And then you need to go back and you need to carefully consider how all of the parts of this Old Testament Scripture, 39 books, how it relates to the Lord Jesus Christ and to the New Testament ministry. How the Old Covenant relates to the New Covenant. How the law relates to grace. All of these things are things that you need to grasp and need to understand. I was tempted to just detour right here and go into some of that. We'll hold back and not do that. And then the ministry of the upper room. Now the ministry of the upper room is simply, uh, in their case, was awaiting for an event. 
And the waiting for that event was the coming of the Holy Spirit. We no longer have to wait for 10 days in the upper room. Because the minute you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, the Holy Spirit baptizes you into the body of Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit seals you and dwells you and so on and so forth. And you are equipped by God's Holy Spirit to accomplish what the apostles did in the power of, of that Holy Spirit. So preparation was important for them. And preparation is important for us. And so therefore, let's be certain that we get into the Word of God and that we study it and that we learn it and that we know it. So then, that's one thing. The fact that the disciples were so well prepared. And by the way, the Apostle Paul was like one born out of due season. And uh, the book of Acts simply records the narrative with Paul being converted and then all of a sudden he shows up in Damascus and then he begins his ministry and uh, it isn't long, you know, and you see him a full-fledged missionary. And if it were not for the fact that Paul gave us a little insight in the book of Galatians, we might not quite understand it. In two different places, actually, Paul gives us an indication that for a two-year period he spent time in Arabia. He didn't go to theological seminary there because there weren't any. But the Lord taught him. And the Apostle Paul had some, some preparation for his ministry. Now, I believe any person that knows Jesus Christ can lead others to Christ. I think that's, that's very, 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 very true. Um, because all bringing people to Christ is, is one beggar telling another beggar where he can find bread. And that really isn't that difficult. Any person can lead another to Jesus Christ. But if you are going to disciple others, and you should be, for you're commanded to do that, then you should prepare yourself for that ministry. Now, it always alarms me just a little bit that uh, the average Christian, when he hears a message, picks and chooses the parts of the message that he can immediately apply to his life right then. And sort of think, well, that's all I need to do. Have you ever thought in terms of the fact that if something is said that has bearing upon what, how you might bring others to a closer walk with God, that you should latch onto that so that you in turn would be able to teach others? Because the process of multiplication comes from 2 Timothy 2.2, where it says, the, the things which thou hast learned among faithful witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others, 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 to teach others. That's the concept that's being taught in 2 Timothy 2.2. My responsibility is to teach you. I should be teaching you so that you in turn can teach others, to teach others, to teach others, to teach others. You see? It's the only way we'll ever get the job done. If you count on the pastor doing it all, then forget it. He'll never make it. One man cannot accomplish what God wishes to accomplish in Santa Clara Valley or in Cupertino or in Sunnyvale or wherever we happen to be. One man cannot do it. One man must teach another man to teach another man to teach another man. And you, when you hear the word, become responsible in two ways. First of all, you are responsible to apply the word of God to your life. 
Secondly, you're responsible to communicate that message to others. And you never really have learned it until you can communicate it. And so therefore, what you ought to be doing is you ought to be laying hold on these things and then again, like the Bereans, go home and search the Scriptures to see if these things be so. And when you find them to be so, then learn how you can best communicate them to others. That is preparation. And one reason that people never are effective in discipleship is because though they've been Christians for years, they have never prepared to disciple others. All right. The second thing then was the preaching of the disciples. The preaching. Now, this gets exciting. Look, if you will, at Acts chapter 2. Now, we won't study Peter's message because the content of the message itself is a study all in itself. And there are tremendous truths concerning what he presented. We've already mentioned the fact that he tied the Old Testament into it. But look at verse 14. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, that would be the men of the Jewish race, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, those would be the dwellers of Jerusalem, uh, the, the uh, uh, permanent residents. Be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. Now see, he's addressing two different cultures. He's addressing the, Jude the men of Judea, that is men of Ju Jewish race scattered throughout the world, and the the residents of Jerusalem, which would be the locals. All right? He says, Be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. And then he goes on and he explains. He explains the phenomenon that happened. What's the result? Look, if you will, at verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart. The word pricked here is K-A-T-A-N-U-S-S-O. Katanuso, uh, it actually means to stun. It means to, or to, to strike violently, uh, to pierce, uh, is the idea. You can use that word, uh, kata, uh, the root of kata means uh, down, uh, domination. And uh, Nuso uh, has the, the concept and idea of piercing. It's a piercing down, or, or a, uh, it's the idea of the soldier putting the spear right through his opponent. That was the concept and the idea, and the kata just intensifies it here. And so therefore, they, they really were stunned. They, were, they, they, they felt the sword of the Spirit go right into them. Now, you know, technically... Peter's message wasn't all that great. Homiletics professors can study that message and they could show that Peter was a lousy homiletician. That really, what he did was, uh, was, was present this. It was just sort of more like a testimony than it was really preaching. 
And they, of course, will excuse it by saying that, well, you know, he really didn't have a text to go by and he didn't have all the tools that uh, homileticians have today and so on and so forth, but you can't even find his three points in a poem, you know. They're not there. So homiletically and technically, it was nothing great. But, you know, that's not the important thing. God never placed the emphasis upon skill of oratory. He placed the emphasis upon the ministry of the Holy Spirit as he used Holy Spirit-filled men. And that's why uh, just because you happen to have some cute little phrases, don't think you're going to be effective in your winning others to Christ and discipling them. Because cute phrases is not going to do it. A walk with God is. That's the difference. And so Peter preaches this message. And then it says, When they heard this, they were, they were pricked or, or pierced in their hearts and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Now the question itself indicates that they were believing by that question. And so then Peter says, Repent. Repent simply means to change your mind. That's all it means. It doesn't mean change your life or ways, though that, of course, follows. But it simply means change your mind. That is, change your mind from one of, of not believing, not believing, uh, uh, and uh, uh, not uh, believing that Jesus is the Christ to one uh, that believes that Jesus is the Christ. Uh, change your mind from one who has been following the, the keeping of the law to one who now is going to accept the gift of grace. That is repentance. Repent. And then resultant. Result is that you should be then baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. And uh, for there is the, the particle ace. Ace uh, which is because of or the basis or the ground. Uh, the, uh, the ground is the remission of sins. That's the only reason a person to be baptized is because the remission of sins has already taken place. And ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then he goes on and talks about it, and it tells us that there were many that were gladly received his word, and they added unto them, verse 41, about 3,000 souls. So Peter's first sermon brought conviction, which brought conversion. These people were saved by God's grace. Now, in chapter 3, we have another sermon. Chapter 3, verse 14. Here, it, uh, it started a little earlier, back in verse 12, but in verse 14, notice what he's doing here. He says, But you denied the Holy One and the just. That is, he's referring to Jesus Christ as the Holy One, as the one uh, who is God, in other words, because they understood the term, the Holy One, to be speaking of God. He denied the Holy One and the just, and desired a murderer, that would be Barabbas, to be granted unto you, and killed the Prince of Life. Look at the terminology that he's using concerning Jesus Christ. Killed the Prince of Life. Now, that's an antithesis, because you see, uh, the prince here, the, the word prince, it really means the author or the leader of. Here's the leader of life, and you killed him. How could you do such a thing? Well, it's obvious that he's, he's using here a little bit 
of, uh, of comparison to show them the, the ultimate sacrifice that, that God uh, had uh, allowed to happen. Killed the prince of life whom God hath raised from the dead of which we are witnesses. All right, so once again, the very simple gospel of Jesus Christ. And then look at chapter 4, if you will, verses 1 through 4, and see the result. As they spoke unto the people, the priests and the captain of the temple, the Sadducees came upon them. Now, the Sadducees were a band of 24 Levites who guarded the temple. And uh, they, uh, uh, the, the, leader, uh, the leader was, uh, of course, the, the, uh, uh, the captain of the temple. The, the one who was involved in actually uh, guarding uh, the, the, the temple uh, grounds and so on. Sadducees were the liberals of that day. The Pharisees were the conservatives, and they both rejected Christ, incidentally. But the Sadducees uh, and the captain of the temple came unto them being grieved, uh, being troubled, being indignant, that they taught the people and preached through Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The Sadducees, of course, didn't believe in the resurrection, and that's why they were Sadducee. And uh, so they were the ones that denied the resurrection. And they were concerned because they preached that Jesus Christ uh, had, was raised from the dead. And so what did they do? Well, they laid hands on them, put them in custody onto the next day, for it was even now even to eventide. But many of them who heard the word believed. The number of the men was about 5,000. All right? Once again, here we have... A message brought, and this time there was a mixed response. First time we didn't see any negative reaction. We see a mixed reaction here. They laid hands on them, but there were 5,000 who believed. So they preached. And then, if you'll notice, it's interesting to notice uh, Peter's defense in verses 8 through 12 of chapter 4. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said unto them, You rulers of the people, elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man by what means he is made well be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth whom ye crucified whom God raised from the dead even by him doth this man stand here before you well and this is the stone which is set at naught of you builders which has become the head of the corner neither is there salvation in any other for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved Peter gave 92 Greek words in that message, and that was just his defense, just 92 words. But what a tremendous defense it was. There's a lot of gospel preaching that can come from this little bit of defense. That uh, concept and idea of the stone which is uh, set at naught of the builders is in Psalm 118 in verse 22. And uh, the, the idea behind it was that apparently... Uh, though this is not recorded in the uh, record of the building of the temple, um, apparently according to this psalm and according to the reference here that Peter used and one that Christ used as well, that when they were building Solomon's temple, uh, they, of course, you remember, built or, or cut the stone at the quarry and then they marked it. And, uh, and all the pieces of the stone would, would fit together so that when they built the temple... There was no sound of pounding. No one chipped away at the stones. They didn't form the stones on the job. They did this way away. And the same thing with cutting of all of the wood. Uh, they made a prefab temple is what they did. 
They prefabricated it somewhere else, and then they hauled it, and they put it together piece by piece. That was because of the reverence they had for the building of that temple. They did not want any noise. And so they were very, very silent in their building of that temple, as silent as they could be uh, using this method. And uh, the builders apparently found one stone that they couldn't figure out as they were lining the stones up, getting ready to put them together. This one stone didn't fit. It was an odd-shaped stone, and they couldn't figure out where it went, so they put it aside, put it on the trash heap, and they're getting all the stones ready, and uh, so finally the, the builder says, all right, we're ready for stone number one, and he said, this is the stone we're looking for, and he looks up and down the stones, and he can't find the stone. Where is it? He says, the cornerstone. Why, it's the most important stone of all. We can't start the building until we have the cornerstone. And the man kind of sheepishly said, well, I think that's the stone we threw in the trash heap. Oh, you foolish people. He went over in the trash heap and they dug through and they found the cornerstone. And they put the cornerstone in and then all of the rest of the stones were built together. They rejected the stone which became the head of the corner. And this was applied to Jesus Christ. They threw him on the trash heap. They said, you're no, it's not going to fit. God says, my plan cannot go on until the cornerstone's in place. The temple of God cannot be built until the cornerstone's in place. And Peter says, he's the head of the corner. You remember that historical story? No, that's what you've done now. You've been saying all these years, as you read the various historians that put down the record concerning this cornerstone, and you've said, why, those foolish people? They should have known better. And then you did the same thing. And there is no salvation in any other except in the name of Jesus Christ. And he is the one that is the head of the corner. What a tremendous defense that Peter had. Then look at the conclusion of the council, which we already mentioned once tonight. It says, now when they saw the boldness. The word for boldness, by the way, B-A-R-R-E-S-I-S. A-N, paresion, is a word that means to tell all. When they saw the telling all of Peter and John and perceived that they were idiots, that's the word from which we get our word idiot, idiote, and so when they saw that they were uh, uh, men that were unlearned, uh, they, they didn't, the, the idiot of that day was not like an idiot today. It simply meant that he didn't have, hadn't, hadn't learned instruction at schools. And ignorant men, the word uh, uh, ig ignorant uh, simply has the idea of, of being untrained formally. Actually, the word ignorant is the idiote uh, here. Uh, and it means, it means one that's not trained formally, a man often that was not in office. And when they saw this, they marveled and they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. They knew that they had been with the Lord Jesus when they saw the boldness and saw what they were able to say and what they were able to do. All right? Now, another sermon is in the seventh chapter. We already referred to that once. It's Stephen's sermon. Again, just very briefly, 
look at it. He said, verse 2, Men and brethren and fathers, hearken, the God of glory appeared unto our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he dwelt in Haran. And he goes through, and he gives point after point after point. His first point, verses 2 to 8. His second point, verses 9 to 17. His third point is uh, verses 17 through 38. And uh, he gives his fourth point in verses 39 through 53. Four-point sermon. He was more homiletical than Peter. And uh, he answers two charges. The, the, the charges that come, uh, first of all, uh, the, the, the Pharisees, the, the uh, uh, scribes and Pharisees and elders here have said, this man, in, in chapter 6, verse 13, this man causeth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and against the law. He says he's blaspheming in the temple and he's blaspheming the law. And what Stephen does in his message is he answers the first charge by showing that the worship of God is not confined to Jerusalem, not confined to the Jews. You see that basically in verse 48 of chapter 7 uh, where he says, Nevertheless, the Most High dwelleth not in temples made with hands, as saith the prophet. And then he answers the second charge by showing that the Messiah had been foretold and that, that there, the, the record all the way through the Old Testament was that there would be one that would come and that he would die and that he would give his life. And so the whole, the whole thing is put together uh, answering those two charges, a very lengthy sermon that he brings and a tremendous message. And uh, look then at the result in verse 54. When, he heard, when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth and he, being full of the Holy Spirit, looked up steadfastly to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing in the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see heavens open and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And they cried. then he cried with a loud voice and stopped their ears and, uh, and, stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes at the young man's feet, whose name was Saul. And Saul was consenting unto his death at partially... Uh, became converted probably as he saw the way that Stephen died. All right, now, there's several things involved. First of all, success for these men did not always have pleasant overtones. Stephen was successful in getting his message across and it got him killed. We shouldn't think of success in terms of merely the 5,000 that came to know the Lord. We should think also in terms of the fact that some, some success caused imprisonment and some caused death. When the message of the gospel is given forth, and that's a part of the success syndrome of the early church and should be expected today. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But the preaching of these disciples had a large impact upon their community. And that's why they could say, you've filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, you've turned the world upside down. So preparation, and then the preaching, and then the third thing was the purity of the church. Now this one, I wish we didn't have to talk about. I don't like this story, because it scares you to death. But it's part of the biblical record, historically. And it indicates part of the reason that the early church was as effective as they were 
If you look at Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 10, you'll see this story. But a certain man named Ananias, whose name means Jehovah is gracious, with Sapphira, whose name means, means beautiful, his wife sold a possession. Verse 8 tells us that it was a piece of land. Background, Acts chapter 4. The background is this, that something happened in that early church which apparently was not continued. That people became so involved in the ministry that they just simply sold everything they had and came and laid it at the apostles' feet and said, you can use it better than I can. And so they administered this and held all things in common. In other words, if anyone had any needs, they were, they were uh, given money out of uh, the church community chest. Now, mind you, that is not taught in the epistles. Uh, it is not necessarily a norm. There may be times in the future under special circumstances where such a thing would work again. But what happened was that there was a, a man who uh, came and gave and gave a, a, a piece of uh, land, he, he had a piece of land, and he sold the land, and he brought the money, and he laid it at the disciples' feet. His name was Barnabas, the son of consolation. It was a tremendous act. It probably was the greatest uh, act of generosity that had been given. Perhaps others had been bringing uh, some of their worldly goods, but had kept their land. This man apparently was willing to surrender his land. When God is working, you know, amazing things happen. I one of the things that, that uh, happens, of course, is the loosening of the pocketbook. Somebody said that personal dedication is personal dedication. And uh, uh, some people uh, get everything converted in them except their hip pocket, you know. That, uh, that part of their anatomy somehow or another remains carnal. And uh, uh, it's, it's amazing, you know, how the god of mammon has a grip and a control on people. And rather than them having things, things have them. And that happens an awful lot. When God begins to get a hold of his people in real revival, then amazing things happen. And uh, uh, I can recall a time where God blessed in a, in a mighty sweeping revival in a, in a place where uh, my dad had part in the ministry. And uh, the, the offering plate was passed for a missionary need. There was a missionary need. It was a missionary offering they were taking and... Taking and uh, uh, when they when they took the uh, the offering uh, into the room to have it counted, it was a, it was more than enough for the missionary need, and uh, included uh, were were uh, you know buttons and and uh, hair clips and everything else, which which just indicated that that people had just taken their purses and just dumped everything that they had in them into that offering plate, and for the amount of people that were there, the offering was phenomenal. But they found a set of car keys. And uh, hey, what in the world, you know? And you know what it was? It was a missionary uh, who I happened to know, found out later. This missionary um, had come home and had been given a new car. And uh, he was so moved by this missionary need, they took the keys of this new car and he put them in the offering plate and gave that new car away to be sold to meet this missionary need. And uh, he thought, reasoned, you know, I don't really need a car that bad. And so he just gave it to the Lord. 
And uh, that's the kind of thing that can happen. And that's what happened in the early church. It's not to be considered that this, that they did was a norm, but the concept of generosity and biblical giving is certainly a norm. And God needs to get a hold of people today uh, in this regard. And there'd never be a lack. There'd never be a need in any area, the building program or the missionaries or anything else, if God really got a hold of his people this way. But in the process... After Barnabas did his thing, Ananias and Sapphira sold a possession. And they kept back part of the price. Now, when we say keeping back a part of the price, what probably happened, and we're reading between the lines here now, they probably figured that property is worth X number of dollars in our terminology today. And when they went to sell it, they hadn't realized how inflation had taken over and it was worth more than they'd figured. And so what they figured to do was, well, we'll give what we thought we were going to give. We'll give the we'll not give the whole thing. Nobody'll ever know the difference because we told them it'd be worth X number of dollars. His wife also knowing it and they brought the certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to, Anana, to Ananias, Why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land? You say, well, didn't he have that right? Well, certainly. Except, you see, he was claiming to give the whole thing. You see, there's a danger. And you see, we, if the church today were judged harshly on this same circumstance right now there'd be a lot of dead people in this room. Do you realize that? You know why? Because there are a lot of people who claim they're doing everything they can for God time-wise, money-wise, other things. They're making that claim, that profession. And all of the time you know in your heart that you haven't even scratched the surface of what you could do. Right? But we're dealing here with a church that is otherwise pure. And so the result is that Ananias, because he's lying to the Holy Spirit, died. His wife came in, made the same claim, died. They carried both of them out. And fear came upon the church. Look at verse 11. Great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. When there was purity, there was fear. And then there was power. And then there was new converts. All of that came as a result of that that took place with Ananias and Sapphira. Now, mind you, it's not the money that counts. It's not the property that counts. It's the attitude of heart that counts. And a lot of people make profession. And I think that this is one of the great reasons why the church of Jesus Christ is not as effective as it should be in our day and age. We may have preparation and we may have preaching, but when it comes to purity, there may be a real lack. And it may be necessary 
when God's own timing comes, it may be necessary for there to be a house cleaning in the house of God where people are ready to surrender their all to Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean you have to give your all to the church. But when you profess to be sold out to Jesus Christ, that you've given your all to him and you're holding back a part of it, then that's an empty profession. And God may, in some future day, sweep the church clean with a new broom. And when he does, hypocrisy will go. My friends, these are solemn words. I said at the beginning of this section, I don't like to preach about that. That's a frightening thing. It's a frightening thing for me. But in the Corinthian church, you remember, it even said that some in their congregation were weak and sickly, and some had even died because they'd come to the Lord's table in a hypocritical way. Let's not pretend to be more than we are. Let's surrender to Jesus Christ everything we have, everything we could ever hope to be. Let him have his will and his way in our life. You want to be effective? You want to have an effective church? You've got to have a pure church. Therefore, there has to be a dealing with sin. In some cases, the church has to deal with it. In other cases, it's far better if you would judge yourself so that you don't have to be judged. Search your heart. Are you guilty of hypocrisy? Are you guilty of professing more than you're ready to produce? Have you said, everything I have belongs to Jesus Christ, and yet you know that there are things in your life that you wouldn't give up if your life depended on it. Those possessions possess you. Surrender them to Christ. And when you're pure, lifting up clean hands and a pure heart to Almighty God, then we're going to see tremendous impact in our community. Well, there's some other things. We'll get at them next week. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for what you've taught us tonight. We plead guilty, every one of us. We've got those little hidden places, and we would say right now, Lord, take them, each one. We yield them to you. Grant to us then just a full and rich evening as we meditate upon these things. Help us to be prepared. Help us to preach the word to be instant in season and out of season, to reprove and rebuke. We pray then, Father, that we will also be those that are pure in heart. We'll praise you in Christ's name. Amen.